Hello. Hello. Hello, and welcome to Grace Online. We're really excited for you to be able to receive an encouraging word from Scripture today. Because we know that God is already here, and He is ready to be with you. And let's get ready to hear today's message. 1 Timothy chapter 1, and for those of you who may be visiting or a guest or haven't been here in a bit, we're beginning a new sermon series, a new summer sermon series, built around questions submitted by our community related to the Christian faith and the Bible. And the first question right out of the gate is a doozy. First question to be addressed today is, who is saved? Now, the answer to that question may seem obvious. In the Christian faith, those who are saved are those who accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Sounds pretty clear and straightforward, but is it? Since the birth of Christianity, there has been much discussion and debate about the who, the how, and the when of salvation. For example, just to set the stage a little bit, how much does one need to know and understand about Jesus in order to be saved? What about those who do not know or have not heard about Jesus, including those who lived before Jesus was born? And what exactly does it mean to accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior in order to be saved? Does it require a silent prayer, a public confession, a life of repentance, or something more? Is it possible for everyone to be saved, or will only a select few be saved? These are some of the questions we'll be wrestling with today. My God, why did I do this to myself? (laughs) That's one. (laughs) Really, as we look at these questions, really what I hope, and and I'm going to be a little bit repetitive on this, I think, in many ways, that we're going to discover in the midst of these questions that a thorough and nuanced response to these questions about salvation is not only necessary but also challenges the ways in which the fullness and message and the fullness of the message and implications of the gospel can often be reduced and watered down. Our passage today, an excerpt from Paul's first letter to his protege Timothy, reflects not all but some of the tension and complexity in reflecting on the question of who is saved. Let's hear a little bit from that scripture, chapter 2 or chapter 1, sorry, 1 Timothy chapter 2 starting in verse 1. Really got to pray for me, guys. Okay. Let's hear. Paul writes, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and humankind, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all the people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time, and for this purpose I was appointed, a herald and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying, and a true and faithful teacher of the Gentiles. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So... This is challenging because this is a topical sermon, and I don't preach a lot of topical sermons. Um, It's different than if you've heard me preach before, other sermons I will preach, which means you're either going to love this or you're going to hate this, Um, or maybe a little of both. 
when you look at a topical sermon, when you answer questions like these that are, we're coming up in the next couple of weeks, one way to approach it, which is not going to be my approach, is to just give you a laundry list of Scripture verses. Uh, for a variety of reasons, you can ask me about this later, I don't think that's the best way to approach addressing questions like this, which is not to say I don't think Scripture is the right way to approach it. I just don't think throwing out different verses is the way to approach it. Instead, this sermon is the byproduct of me looking at the full content and trajectory of what the Bible says as a whole. Presenting to you, <laughs> be warned, my thought process from prayer, study, and reflection. I'm going to just say this from the outset. It's going to be a dense sermon. I'm going to try to make it as accessible as I possibly can, but I don't know how to not have the depth that is here. And the fact that what we're really wrestling with, not just today, but all throughout the summer, these are ongoing questions, meaning these are questions that come up again and again. That should caution us for every one of these sermons, including this one, should caution us against that we're going to walk away at the end of each message with absolute final answers. As you're going to see, the questions that we're talking about today spark more questions. They spark more reflection. And more than anything else, in engaging such questions, questions like these, we've got to remember we walk by faith, not by sight. And in the midst of this, we have to, as with everything else, leave the final answers to God. And as always, and always, always and every time, rely on the Lord's grace. Now, I mentioned Paul makes two statements in this excerpt from his letter to Timothy that epitomize some of the tension we find throughout Scripture relating to the question of who is saved. And if you missed it, here's the two statements that kind of exist in tension. Paul says, God desires for all people to be saved. But then Paul also says there's only one way for all people to be saved in and through Jesus Christ alone. We'll come back to that. But before we kind of get into some of the, the, the deeper questions that we're looking at this morning, we have to really unpack some foundational questions first, the answers to which will, I think, better guide and inform how we resolve the more complex questions that we have. And the first question we have to ask is, why do we need to be saved? And if you're grew up in Sunday school, you know the answer is sin. We need to be saved because of sin. Okay, but what exactly is sin? When's the last time we actually gave a healthy definition of sin? Sin, the problem, why we need to be saved, is sin is ignoring, it's rejecting, it's rebelling against our creator, the one who initiated and designed everything, the one who orders how life is supposed to work. Sin has been described as missing the target, wandering from the path, going our own way. Sin is both overstepping a line in the sense of a transgression, but sin is also the failure to reach a benchmark in the sense of a shortcoming. Sin is a breach of allegiance and trust that happens both consciously, willfully, acting out of a hard heart or a stiff neck, but sin is also a breach of allegiance and trust that happens unconsciously, unintentionally, as in mistakes and errors, our blindness or our ignorance as a result of the limitations that we have from cutting ourselves off from God, from ourselves, and from each other. Pushing this even further, sin is to one degree an inherited problem. The Bible's clear that the disobedience of our first ancestors was a trait passed down to every generation of humanity. Hence, we are all born with an unhealthy inclination to self, navel-gazing, over and against any deference to our Creator, and over and against any care and compassion for each other. Me first. Now one of the sub-questions that I'm going to address very quickly that was asked that is not a sermon in and of itself was, are babies born sinful? Yes, I'm afraid they are. 
Now, some of, again, this sermon is going to push some of you, shock some of you. This is just how it's going to be. Yes, babies are born sinful. If sin is inherited, then babies inherit that sin. And we see this. Babies are inherently egocentric. I don't know the last time you held a baby. They're cute, but they're inherently egocentric. They're solely focused on getting their needs met. And if they don't, they cry. And they cry. And they cry loud. Considering things from another person's point of view or any other point of view is a skill that has to be learned and developed by a child over time. Great example of what I'm talking about. You ever notice children don't have to be taught to say no? You don't have to teach a child to say no. They figure that out all on their own. No. Or mine. But children do need to be taught to say thank you. Thank you doesn't necessarily come naturally. Thankfully, thankful, thank you is not an inherent, oh, I should be saying thank you. And by the way, just for the record, this predominant inclination to see the world through the lens of self doesn't switch off when we turn two or four or 12 or 30 or 80. Now, in the midst of saying that sin is inherited, we might argue in the same way that we can't choose our family, God should not hold us accountable for a sinful nature we inherited. And while it's true while we don't, that we don't have any say about how we're born, being born with the inclination to sin doesn't mean we can't help but sin. We're all born with the ability to choose right from wrong. And all of us, eventually, and more than once, countless times over, let's be honest, will choose to think, speak, and act in ways that are false, wrong, or bad, even when we are told, even as we know what's good, right, and true. Ultimately, by the way, proving that we sin by deed and not just by nature. So that's the problem of sin, or that's what sin is, but let's appreciate the, really the scope of the problem. And I, this is a place where I feel like we might be surprised. Because oftentimes when we talk about the problem of sin, we represent it in a very simplistic way, as if it's infractions against God's law, you and I breaking one of the Ten Commandments. But in truth, the bigger problem of sin is the violation of what the Bible calls shalom. The bigger problem of sin is interfering and obscuring the way things, the way life was created by God to be. And to push it even further, the problem of sin is not only do we interfere and obscure that, but we get in the way of its restoration. In other words, and this is what's really important to hear this, the problem of sin is not solely an individual issue. We are created as relational beings. Therefore, our lives are interconnected. The wholeness and fullness of who we are created to be cannot be, was not meant to be separated, divorced from our relationship with God, our relationship with each other, and our relationship with creation. We become less than we were meant to be without the health and vibrancy of any and all of those relationships. And likewise, through our brokenness, we contribute to the less than of others and creation when cutting ourselves off. All this is to say, in other words, our choices and actions have consequences as do the choices and actions of others, and all of those consequences go further than our individual intentions. How it affects me or you or us. Growing like a cancer, spreading like an infection, sin corrupts and slowly sucks the life out of us, inevitably leading to death. 
cutting ourselves from off from our creator by doing life my way, sidebar, if I ever do your memorial service, please don't play Frank Sinatra's My Way. <laughs> I'm just saying. I love the song, I love the singer, but no song could be the absolute opposite of the gospel. Cutting ourselves off from our creator by doing life my way, we cut ourselves off from the source and means of our life, and thus we die. This is important. We're not happy about the fact that we die, but understand that our death corresponds with the death of all creation. It's not just we who need to be saved. This world, universes upon universes, are falling apart because of sin. Hence, Scripture tells us all creation groans and longs for its redemption, its salvation too. This is a bigger picture than we often think about. Well, then how then are we saved? For most people, the answer will be, how then are we saved? If someone were to ask you on the street, how, are, how, how can I be saved? Jesus died on the cross to forgive your sins. That's how you're saved. Jesus died on the cross to forgive your sins. And that is true. But the good news of salvation actually begins before the cross. The good news of salvation begins with the incarnation. And the good news of salvation involves so much more than the forgiveness of human sin. It begins with the incarnation. God comes down in Jesus Christ to do what we are incapable of doing. Not only resolving the problem of sin, yes, that's true, but not only resolving the problem of sin, but initiating the restoration of life as it was always intended to be. That's why we pay attention not just to the cross, but God in Christ teaches and embodies what perfect relationship with our creator, perfect relationship with each other, perfect relationship with creation, perfect relationship with ourselves looks like in practice. Jesus, we look at Jesus, we listen to Jesus, we observe, and that's how life was meant to be. That's how life can be. And Jesus, his ultimate willing offering of his life on the cross is the culmination. That's why the cross is so significant. It's the culmination of his life lived in perfect and complete reliance and trust upon God. This life of complete, perfect reliance and trust upon God that's expressed, and it culminates on the cross, but before that it's expressed through his humble, forgiving, and sacrificial posture of love and service toward others. Jesus' victory over death validates everything about who he is. Everything about what he teaches and models. Everything about the work he has done, forgiveness and healing, and everything about the work he is still doing, restoration and transformation. Paul makes this point. We often, when we talk about how are we saved, talk about the cross, but Paul will say very, very explicitly, if Jesus simply died on the cross and isn't raised from the dead... We can all go home. We can pack it in. Because crucifixion by itself is nothing. Because salvation, hear this, isn't ultimately about a repair job. Salvation isn't about cleaning up a mess. Salvation isn't about making improvements or giving us an upgrade. The problem's much deeper than that if you've been tracking. The work of salvation is plain and simple according to the Bible. The work of salvation is about raising the dead. 
Because of sin, we are the walking dead. We have an inherent fixation these days in our culture with zombies, but the Christian understanding is we are our zombies apart from Christ. You don't have to wait for some biohazard or whatever. You are a zombie without Christ. You are the walking dead. We're dead already. We need resurrection. We need the conquering of death, which, why? Death is the culmination of sin and evil. You get rid of death, you get rid of everything else. But we need more than the fact, the witness of Christ's victory. We need the new life born of Jesus' resurrection in us. And that's why when you talk about the gospel, you don't start at the cross. You start at the incarnation. You go to the cross. You go to the resurrection. But you don't stop with the resurrection because we need the life, the new life born of Jesus' resurrection in us. And that's why also when we talk about the gospel, Pentecost matters. Pentecost is a part of our salvation because Pentecost is the unleashing of the ongoing abiding presence and direction and power of Christ in, within us. So, stepping back, think about how you often talk about salvation. Salvation is not just about forgiveness. Salvation, then, is about new, abundant, everlasting life. A life free from the wages of sin and evil and death. And this salvation that we desperately need, that all creation longs for, is mediated exclusively through the person of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul emphasizes in this passage to Timothy, right? And the singularity of Christ. And the singularity of Christ for our salvation isn't just mentioned here. It's clearly and explicitly repeated over and over again in the scriptures. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. We could go on and on and on of just the continuation of the exclusivity of the salvation we need that all creation longs for comes only through Christ. And we live in a pluralistic world. And in a pluralistic world, many will point to and argue for truth that can be found in other religions or philosophies. And we shouldn't negate that. There are indeed, and there can be no denying, common themes and points of contact that Christianity shares with other faiths. All truth is God's truth wherever it is found and practiced. However, the declaration of the gospel is all truth inevitably leads back to all truth is only fully revealed and realized in the way, truth, and life of Jesus Christ. But the exclusivity of salvation found in Christ alone has implications beyond the rival claims of other religions or philosophies. The exclusivity of salvation found in Christ alone also negates any assertion humanity makes of cooperating or participating in its salvation and the salvation of all creation. Our salvation has nothing to do with what we deserve. It has nothing to do with what we earn. It has nothing to do with what we merit. It has nothing to do with what we bargain or negotiate with God. God initiates our redemption while we were yet sinners, not while we were crying out for mercy and help. And through the witness and example of the life, the sacrifice, the victory, and the spirit of Christ, we don't put our faith in Jesus. Jesus gives us the gift of faith. Jesus gives us the inspiration, the insight 
of something, someone to believe in. Jesus not only gives us faith to believe, but through the giving of the Holy Spirit, Jesus empowers us and provides direction so we can follow him and be changed and transformed. Now I'm looking around and I'm seeing a couple of heads nodding in agreement. I'm with you. Yep. And yet, if you are tracking with everything I've laid out, if I were to ask you when you were saved... Many of us, if not all, would answer, I was saved when I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. (laughs) This is not true. Were you listening? This is not true. Because if salvation is based completely on God's action, on the work of Christ, then our salvation has nothing whatsoever to do with any decision or response we make for Christ. Dead in sin, we are unable to come to God in Christ on our own apart from the initiative, the prompting, the leading and empowerment of the Holy Spirit. That's why the Bible often talks of rebirth, being born again, not birthing ourselves. Because in the same way we had nothing to do with our first birth, as far as I know, we have nothing to do with our spiritual rebirth. Rightly put, All of us were saved more than 2,000 years ago at the culmination of Jesus' life, which began again with his death on the cross, resulted in his resurrection from death, and ended with the pouring out of his spirit, his resurrection life. Once again, because this again is going to be challenging for some, we are not saved by our decision or acceptance of Christ. We are always and only saved by God's action, God's decision for us in and through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, this is where we're getting somewhere, right? Because some of us are like, wait a second, hold on. I got, I got some things to say. We might push back. Doesn't the Bible emphasize the necessity of believing in Christ? I mean, I'm sorry, Pastor, but don't apostles like John and Peter and Paul, I mean, that's a pretty good list, in their writings, direct those who believe in Jesus to confess and to repent. Aren't these powerful arguments for the necessity of knowing and believing in Christ in order to be saved? Let's assume this is correct. Let's assume that our salvation is based on our informed, conscious choice to accept Jesus. We assume that's correct. The question becomes, how much does one need to know and believe in order to be saved? If For example, confession of sin is required. What if we don't perceive an attitude or action we've taken or that we're taking as sinful? What if we don't perceive it as sinful? If we carry unconfessed sin, have we really believed and accepted Christ? If repentance is a requirement, how do we know if we're repenting? How do we know if we're repenting? What if we keep struggling with the same old sin After our profession of faith, doesn't this suggest we are then unrepentant and seemingly question the validity of our belief and acceptance in Jesus? If an informed response of belief, knowing and accepting Christ, is necessary in order to be saved, what does this mean for persons who are born without the cognitive cognitive capacity to comprehend the gospel? including the presumed requirements of confession and repentance? What do you do with those who don't have the capacity cognitively 
to understand, to, to make that statement. Let's push this even further. We're having fun, right? Or not. Because many will also argue this informed decision for Christ, this profession of knowledge and belief in Jesus in order to be saved must take place before one dies. Okay? What does this mean for infants and children who, through no doing of their own, are not able to understand the gospel well enough to repent, believe, and confess before they die? If knowing and believing in Jesus is the criteria for being saved, what then becomes of anyone who dies without properly or completely hearing the good news about Jesus? And let's step back and think about the numbers of people that we're talking about here. How many people are we potentially talking about this affects? People in unreached nations and communities across the globe. People who were born into a family and ethnicity that is inseparable from their faith tradition, meaning it's core to their identity and belonging. We've kind of lost that in the Western world, but there are many individuals who their faith is, you can't pull it apart from their, their family. You can't pull it apart from their culture at all. It's, they're, they're all locked together. And let's go even a step further, regrettably, What do we do with people who may have been exposed to the gospel, to Christ, but the tellers of the story, the so-called representatives of Jesus, so mangled the gospel or manipulated and abused others in the name of Jesus that the hearers never really experienced the truth and salvation of Christ and even now are predisposed to resist or reject the gospel due to the trauma they experienced? These aren't easy questions. And that's why, beloved, to assert we are saved only through believing and accepting Christ puts the basis of our salvation on factors none of us have control over or anything to do with. Factors like when and where we are born, to whom we are born, and what culture and context we are born into. And the, the, the dissonance here is, as Christians, we like to say, Christ died for the sins of all the world. We love to sing. It's one of everybody's favorite song, right? Jesus loves the little children. All the little children of the world. But the implications of asserting the necessity of having to confess, repent, and accept Christ in order to be saved, that's key, communicates a far different message, doesn't it? Namely, that Jesus' love and the salvation Christ delivers only reach as far, only are available for those lucky enough to have been born with the cognitive capacity in the right circumstances and subject to the proper teaching of the gospel. Now, I'm not stupid. I know some of you out there are a step ahead of me. And in the midst of everything I've just outlined, you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Pastor Chris, you are forgetting the special exceptions that God makes to the situations you've raised. Oh, do tell. (laughs) Maybe we've been taught about an age of accountability. Raise your hands if you've heard that one before, an age of accountability. Come on, don't be shy. Raise your hands. An age of accountability. Meaning there's a point at which a child is old enough to make a responsible decision to accept Christ as Lord and Savior and be baptized. Until reaching that age, that child is viewed in the eyes of God as innocent. They're covered. 
And individuals who are born and remain, say, at a cognitive disadvantage, many would insist, also fall under this special dispensation. I could go on, but this is going to be a long sermon already. But if we were to do a deep dive into the history of conversation within various Christian traditions, we would discover, and I'm not kidding, I've been in it all week and it's made me crazy. We would discover all kinds of proposed resolutions, some creative, some bizarre, to the questions raised by the insistence on a decision for Christ as being necessary for salvation. But here's the thing. You can do the research, but you're going to have to come back here. And unfortunately, if we search and study the scriptures, we will never find anything that explicitly endorses any of these exceptions, including, I'm sad to say, the notion of an age of accountability. You will not find it. I've looked. I've searched. You can try to piece it together, but you're not going to find anywhere where it explicitly says, there it is. Here's the footnote. By the way, age of accountability. Seriously, in the end, amid all our assumed and much debated criteria about what constitutes a proper belief and acceptance of Christ in order to be saved, do any of us actually think we ever get it all exactly right? How can we if ultimately our relationship with God in Christ is a matter of faith and not a series of propositional, precise doctrinal statements? If you think about it, in stressing the content of our belief, aren't we putting the focus of our salvation where it doesn't belong? In stressing the content of our belief, we're putting the focus on us rather than on the Lord. And I'll say it again. If salvation is by Jesus alone and Christ alone, by grace alone, then salvation is totally the work of God in Christ. We can do nothing to secure salvation for ourselves and the rest of creation. The Lord chooses us. The Lord comes to us. The Lord draws us to himself. Our rebirth, our resurrection, our transformation is not the result of human decision. As John writes in the first chapter of his gospel, Christ alone gives life beyond death and leads and preserves us in our journey of coming home to becoming the best and full everlasting version of ourselves. It's all about God, nothing to do with us. Now, to be clear... Because I know some of you are still waiting for this. We are called to respond to the gospel, to the call of Christ. We are called to respond to the gospel, the call of Christ. Our response to Jesus matters. It just doesn't save us. The message and invitation of the gospel, again, are not, God has done his part in and through Jesus. Now it's time for us to make a decision for Christ and do our part. To confess and repent, to believe and accept Jesus, to pray and worship, to read our Bibles and lovingly serve others. No, the message and invitation of the gospel are in and through God and Christ. It is finished. All things are being made new. There is nothing for us to contribute. There is nothing we have to do to prove ourselves or demonstrate our commitment. Instead, the verbs the Bible uses all the time about our response, the response that matters, is that we are called to embrace, we are called to yield, we are called to rely, we are called to depend, we are called to abide in the work of salvation Jesus has already accomplished for us and for all creation. Our response doesn't save us, but our response is receiving what we are given by following Jesus, not trying to think, make things square with Christ, not trying to make our mark for the kingdom of God, but instead receiving in the sense of living out of a sense of freedom, 
possibility and gratitude, praying and worshiping, reading and studying our Bibles, loving and serving others, not because we have to, but because we get to. Because these are the means to keep receiving and living out of the gift of salvation Jesus' purposes to do in and through us. Again, I know this is dense, so here's an analogy that better, I think, will help you better appreciate the distinction, the nuance between viewing our response to the gospel as saving us versus our response as embracing the salvation God alone extends to us in Christ. Imagine we are gifted a check for a million dollars. There's nothing we need to do to earn it. There is no requirement to pay it back. The money is ours as it is. However, to receive the money, we, of course, have to endorse the check. Endorsing the check would be in no way construed as somehow earning or funding the check. Endorsing the check doesn't give us license to boast and brag to others about how we made the decision to become a millionaire. That somehow we earned or funded the check by our decision to sign our name to it. No, the million dollar check was a gift and endorsing the check was our means of receiving it. Now, <laughs> the gift of salvation we are offered is far more than a million dollar check. This analogy obviously breaks down. But in the same way, the gospel is that Christ saves everyone. All creation. All have been saved. And that work of salvation is purely and wholly a gift of the grace of God. And in the midst of that gift, we have been given free will by God, the choice of whether or not to endorse that check. But our decision towards that gift has nothing to do with the work and offer that makes that gift possible. Our response, our acceptance or non-acceptance, is how we endorse and cash that check, how we exercise that gift, how we live or do not live out of the salvation we have been given. So this brings us to the big question. Will everyone be saved? To be clear, if you missed it, everyone, including all creation, is saved thanks to Jesus Christ. Salvation, salvation has taken place for everyone and everything. The, Bible, the gospel of the Bible is exclusive in declaring salvation comes in and through Christ alone by grace alone. And at the same time, the gospel of the Bible is inherently entirely inclusive in that the gift, the saving work, the ongoing presence and power of Jesus are freely offered to everyone. So the proper question then is not will everyone be saved, but will everyone receive the gift of salvation? And an honest reading of biblical revelation would seem to suggest that not everyone will endorse the check. Some will refuse the gift. And yet, at the same time, the Bible also proclaims several times that God desires that all people would receive the gift of salvation. Paul expresses this very idea to Timothy in our passage today. And this declaration that God desires that all would receive the gift of salvation should challenge many of our assumptions and give us great comfort and hope about who might still embrace the gift of salvation. Here we go. For if salvation is in Christ alone by grace alone, if our salvation is not contingent on our intellectual assent, conviction of the heart, profession of belief, good works, but is a gift of grace by God in and through Christ alone— if our decision is not what saves us, 
then that means there is some wideness and possibility as to how and when we can respond to the gospel. For example, is it possible that completely throwing oneself upon the mercy and grace of God without knowing by whom and on what basis that mercy and grace are given could be received as an endorsement of the check? Isn't this how Old Testament believers say like Abraham? Those before the emergence of Christ, those who had the form but not the explicit full content of the gospel, isn't this how they received the gift of God's grace? And what are what of other examples in the Old Testament? The Queen of Sheba, the Syrian military officer Naaman, who again, before the emergence of Christ, and on top of that, in their current time, living outside the beliefs and practices of God's covenant people of Israel, and yet their response, response to God was deemed as a reception of God's grace. In the pages of the New Testament, we witness Jesus affirm the response of several perceived outsiders. The Samaritan woman at the well, the Roman centurion, the Canaanite woman, outsiders who held rival, faulty religious beliefs, and yet Jesus publicly commended them as having embraced the gift of salvation he offers. And don't Jesus, and later the Apostle Paul, surprise us in commending those who are living the way God intends, loving God and loving their neighbor, even though they do not have a Bible, even though they do not yet know the God of Israel, the God revealed in Christ. Is it then possible to be receiving Christ, following Jesus, without yet knowing who Christ is, without yet understanding and hearing the gospel? Now, perhaps we're thinking, whoa, 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 whoa. If thinking that Jesus is not explicitly known or recognized, doesn't that possibility trivialize, doesn't that lessen the significance of Christ's saving work? Not at all. Because for the person who's living out of the grace of God and giving all the glory to God, Jesus is still the source, the underwriter, the basis of every saving benefit they are experiencing and sharing, even if they're not conscious or aware of the one who covers the check. Let's consider another possibility. One of these is going to drive me out of town. If, as the Bible records, and as we confess, and some of you always scratch your head when we do, Jesus descended into hell and shared the good news with those who were already dead, which, by the way, I talked about this last week, is an eternal moment, so it's outside of time. It's not a temporal moment. It's an eternal moment. Go back to the sermon from last week if you need more about that. But the significance of that is huge. If Jesus descended into hell and shared the good news with those who were already dead, is it possible that those who have died, that those who have not heard, that those who did not respond in this life might, might have the opportunity to embrace the gift of grace at the moment of their physical death or even thereafter? Now, now you're just talking crazy, Pastor Chris. Now you're just talking crazy. Because if that's the case, if that's the possibility, then why bother? I mean, why not wait till the very end to accept Christ's invitation? And this underscores how we, don't, we just don't get what salvation is. My friends, salvation isn't a destination. Salvation isn't a future gift. Salvation isn't a lifeline that's extended to us to reach out for when we die. Salvation isn't a lifeline. Salvation is an invitation into life change. A new life, a transformative relationship of perceiving, thinking, speaking, interacting with God, with oneself, with each other, with all creation, now. 
Why would you wait until later to experience that? Why would you wait to endorse and cash a million-dollar check until you're on your deathbed? Why would you squander that gift instead of living out of it, having one's life changed from it now? Now, if we push back on the possibility of embracing the gift of salvation post-mortem, that it somehow lessens the urgency of evangelism. No, it doesn't. Because why would, we, why would we not want anyone to know about that check? Why would we not want anyone to experience that life change now? The evangelism urgency doesn't go away. And our impetus to share the gospel, by the way, in word and deed, isn't driven by whether we think the message is strong enough or how we think we need to sell it. Our imperative to share the gospel in word and deed is driven solely, as Paul informs Timothy in this letter, by divine appointment, by the great commission of Christ. And the imperative for that commission, for sharing the good news, remains unchanged. We don't save anyone. That's why our fixation about getting people to make a decision, getting people to cross the line, we don't save anybody. We're called in our evangelism to witness. We're called in our evangelism to point. We're called in our evangelism to encourage, to invite others into receiving and experiencing the fullness of salvation that can be found in Christ alone, but we leave the end result where it belongs, in God's hands. Now, I'm, I'm throwing out a lot. I'm almost done. I'm probably not going to be at the door. I'm going to run home. You have no idea how hard this has been to prepare, let alone preach. Beth will tell you it's been, I am so grateful to finally just get this out. I hope you come back next week. If there are visitors and people here for the first time, I really am sorry this is your first Sunday with us. But I want to be really, really clear. I want to be really, really clear. All that I've asserted are possibilities, not promises. I'm not declaring what is. I'm asking what if. Is it possible people can respond to the gift of salvation in a way that is embraced by God even if it's not deemed acceptable by us? If the essence of God's character is love, if God wants all to be saved and does not desire that anyone should perish, if out of his love for all humanity, God seeks the highest well-being and fulfillment of every person, which is to be in perfect relationship with him, with themselves, and with each other, is it possible that the reach of God's gift of salvation extends beyond the boundaries and limits we've constructed? The Bible tells us plainly that before what appears impossible to humanity, especially related to salvation, everything is possible with God. Nothing is impossible with God. Scripture assures us again and again, in word and example, that the Lord is not only capable, but willing to do more than we could ever imagine or hope for. To bring life out of nothingness, good out of evil, mourning that can turn into dancing, new beginnings that dawn from perceived dead ends. I guess what I'm ultimately saying is if God desires that all embrace the gift of salvation, why wouldn't we? Why don't we? I guess what I'm asking, are we, and this is my favorite part of this letter that's probably the most over, under, over, under, underappreciated, overlooked. Are we praying like Paul directs Timothy to do? Did you catch that? How Paul directs Timothy to pray specifically for all people to receive the gift of salvation that is ours in Christ? Or are we instead spending all our time and energy speculating, maybe even condemning those who we've deemed beyond the possibility of God's reach? My friends, grace is not a commodity. 
Grace is not the possession of the church. Grace is not something the Christian community can dispense or, for that matter, restrict its flow. We ought to be really careful and really cautious about the limits we put on the grace of God in another person's life, in the life of another country, in the life of another culture. Because ultimately, the limits we dare put on the reach and power of God's grace become the self-imposed limits we put in front of God's grace in reaching and transforming us. Beloved, the salvation we need that doesn't just rescue or redeem us, but surpasses all of that and heals and transforms all of us and every square inch of creation is accomplished and is coming to eternal fruition through Jesus Christ alone. And this all-encompassing work of salvation is a gift of God's grace that we can either receive or reject, but our decision either way has no bearing on the truth and power of that salvation. But receiving that gift means living out of the truth and power of that salvation we have in Christ. Receiving that gift means reflecting and sharing the truth and power of that salvation by graciously representing Jesus to others through our love and service of them in the name of Christ. Will everyone receive the gift of salvation offered to the world in and through Jesus? Seemingly not. But given the gracious character of the God we worship, as well as God's prior track record of going well beyond our expectations and presupposed limits that we place before him, I wouldn't be surprised if I'm wrong. Myself, having experienced <laughs> more than once how relentless God can be in his pursuit, how relentless God can be in wooing us to embrace his invitation, not by coercive, arbitrary force, but through the conquering agencies of his everlasting love, love light enough to make the blind see, love tender enough to soften the hardest heart, love so strong, so enduring, that not even all the world's sin, all the forces of evil, all the, the all-encompassing shadow of death could bury it for more than three days. Myself, having experienced that love, witnessed it, seen it personally as a pastor, taking seriously the explicit desire of our God to see everyone saved, I'm praying I'm wrong. I'm hoping I'm wrong. And I'm here to tell you, so should you. Amen. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org.